When you listen to Jesus in the Gospels, you get this layering. I tell people, when you have conversations, you can't just have a conversation. Kingdom-centered conversations have three layers. They have the layer of, this is what I know. Second one is, this is what I think. And the third one is, this is what I feel. When we cheer for each other, that's that kingdom-centered peace where we love fiercely, but don't take the life out of people. We let them go. We are continuing this springtime uh, series, looking through the book of Acts. And uh, this weekend, the title of the message is... The court, the courts are in session. I've been waiting to do that all week. And we'll probably find another opportunity during this message to do it again for no other reason but that I have the power. Uh, we are looking this weekend, and as you're already picking up, I'm in a bit of a naughty week, uh, kind of a mood this weekend. So would you please pray? <laughs> this could go horribly wrong. I'm just in one of those moods. And... Uh, Here's what the deal is this weekend. We are going to cover five chapters of the book of Acts this weekend during this message. And five chapters, that's quite a lot uh, of chapters. And if I read the five chapters, there would be no room for any preaching. How many would say that's a pretty good idea? It's really rude of you. So... I'm not going to read the five chapters, but we are going to, I'm going to really try and give you an overview of what happens during these five chapters, and then we're going to zero in and, and uh, see how we do with this. Uh, I, throughout my time here at Timberline, I've, I've often talked to you guys about the fact that my wife Kay is uh, frequently mistaken for my daughter. I've talked about that a lot. It's obviously a deep residual pain. In my life, what's really irritating is when she doesn't deny that she's not. That's kind of <laughs> frustrating. But you know what, uh, everybody? Things reached a crisis point this week. Uh, a crisis point because Kay and I went into a, uh, a, a store. It doesn't matter where it was. It was a store. And uh, we're looking around and I stepped aside and go off to look at something else. Then I came back and there's a little four-year-old girl just wandering around the store with her mum. And this four-year-old came up to us. She looked at Kay. She looked at me. And she said to Kay, Is this your granddad? (laughs) Thank you for that wave of compassionate support. It was a case of mistaken identity. And the child's mother was mortified. Good. In this five chapters that we're looking at, one of the small problems that Paul has to deal with is a case of mistaken identity. He is, he is arrested by a Roman official who thought that he might just be an Egyptian terrorist. We know from history that three years before this happened, uh, an Egyptian freedom fighter had got together 30,000 men, taken them to the top of the Mount of Olives, promised them that the walls of Jerusalem would fall, that they would storm the city and take over from the hated Romans. The hated Romans 
under the leadership of the governor, intercepted that plot. The rebels were killed, captured, or scattered. The Egyptian terrorist leader disappeared. And now, in this story that we're reading, one of the Roman officers thinks that Paul is that terrorist. So there's a case of mistaken identity here. But that's, frankly, the least of his problems. And this is not just a, a moment, or a little, a few weeks or months of difficulty. This is a two, two to three year period of one thing after another going wrong for the Apostle Paul. Everywhere the guy went, there was a riot. Everywhere he went, there was a riot, first of all. There was always trouble. But in this five chapters that we're overviewing, there were no less than five trials that took place. Five times Paul is accused during this season. The converted slave trader and great hymn writer John Newton writing those famous words in the hymn where we love to celebrate amazing grace. He says, through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. His grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. And this, this series of episodes summarizes or epitomizes, if you will, that truth. That Paul is really in some trouble, but grace, the grace of God, sustains him. So let's dive in. And uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, point out some, uh, some parts of uh, the various episodes and see what we can learn. How did Paul respond to this season of real pressure. Well, first, the first lesson we can learn from Paul is this. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at pain or heartbreak. Don't be surprised at pain or heartbreak. Before any of this stuff happened, Paul was prophetically warned that trouble was ahead. Let me read to you some verses from Acts chapter 21. It says, several days later, a man called Agabus, who also had the gift of prophecy, arrived from Judea. He came over, took Paul's belt, and bound his own feet and hands with it. Then he said, the Holy Spirit declares, so shall the owner of this belt be bound by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the local believers all begged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But he said, why all this weeping? You're breaking my heart. I am ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. When it was clear that we couldn't persuade him, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. As I've said, Paul ends up being dragged into court. Now, I wasn't sure whether I should share this with you, and I know I'm going to regret it. I'm going to go home at the end of this weekend, and I'll say, why did I tell him that? But uh, here we go. Um, I once got a speeding ticket. I know. And uh, my wife, she's been stopped a number of times by friendly local cops who wanted to chat with her about her speed, and she's never been given a ticket. She's because she becomes like the queen when the cop stops you. She says, oh, hello, frightfully sorry. <laughs> and, you know, they want to take her out to lunch, you know. It's like, you know. But when granddad does it. 
So, and, and don't write in, I'm not proud of this, I'm not making light of it, I know that fast driving is dangerous, I get all of that, so don't think that I'm just making light of the situation. But there is this turning, when you go to the airport, there is this turning on the toll road, you know the turning, where suddenly it goes from 75 to 50 and the cops sit on the top of the hill waiting for you. And I didn't notice the 50 sign on the ramp. And I didn't slow down in time. And there's a gentleman waiting to greet me. And I tried my Prince Charles routine. And he looked at me like I'd been drinking something. You know, it's like, what's, what's with you? So because I hit that ramp so fast and because I was 10 miles over, I had to go to court. It was horrible. I had friends from out of town staying with me. They came with me for the entertainment. <laughs> How rude. And you know, you sit there and they call you up and it's like a parade of shame. And the, the judge didn't even ask me if I was guilty or not guilty. So I, in my mind I'm thinking I need to protest about this. But then I think if I protest, I'll probably be executed. It's not going to be good. <laughs> So I got this big fine, but I can just remember this sense of intimidation just being there in court. And that was for a ticket. Can you imagine five trials? But it's not speeding, it is, it is a religious charge, the charge of blasphemy. It is a political charge, the charge of being a troublemaker. The Romans dealt swiftly with troublemakers. And look at this. Paul is standing trial before an angry Jewish crowd who try to kill him. He then is tried before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, and they want to kill him. Uh, and then he is taken before the Roman governor, the governor Felix. He is tossed in jail for two years. And then the governor Festus succeeds Felix, and so there's another trial. And then he stands trial before King Agrippa II. So there's five trials. So this is one thing after another, everybody. But not only that, when he arrived originally at Jerusalem, he is greeted by a welcome but some suspicion from the church there. There are rumors flying around about Paul that he's encouraging people to break Jewish laws. And he's pressurized into participating in a Jewish purification ritual. More about that later. Then there's these Jews. that they, they, they try to kill him. Then the Romans, while these guys are trying to kill him, the Romans show up. And get this, everybody. They don't arrest the bad guys. They arrest the guy who's being beaten up. That would make you mad, wouldn't it? They arrest him. Uh, then there's this interaction with the Jewish crowd, the mistaken identity thing. Then they say they're going to flog him. It's the flagellum, the, the Roman flagellum. It was a horrendous beating. Men often died when they were being flogged like this. Then he appears before the Sanhedrin. He gets a punch in the mouth, literally, during the hearing. They're furious. Then he hears, get this, then he hears that there are 40 men who have taken a vow to assassinate him and they will not eat or drink until he's dead. He's taken to Caesarea by night because of all of this threat. And the Romans are so worried about him 
they send 470 men to guard him from his would-be assassins. He gets to Caesarea, stands before Felix. Felix, this governor, was an evil man. He was a slave who became uh, a governor. And historians tell us that he ruled with the heart of a slave and the power of a king. He crucified leaders of various uh, uprisings. Two years in prison, because Felix thinks he might be able to get a bribe out of Paul. Then Festus shows up. And then Herod the Gripper and his sister, uh, they show up. Now, now just, let me just pause back here and give you a little bit more history. Who, who's Herod Agrippa II? Well, his great-grandfather was Herod the Great, who tried to have all the, had all the babies killed and was looking to kill the infant Jesus. That was great-granddaddy. Uh, granddaddy was Herod Antipas, who beheaded John the Baptist. Daddy was Herod Agrippa I, who had James, the son of Zebedee, killed with the sword. And now his son is showing up for the trial. So you've got the Herod family, who we know two things about them. Number one, they kind of like the name Herod. That's pretty obvious. And secondly, they were a bunch of psychopaths. And now this guy is showing up to participate in Paul's trial. What am I saying here? I'm saying this doesn't look good. This doesn't look good. If we buy the idea that as people of faith, we will be spared pressure, problems, difficulties, we've never read the Bible and understood it fully. Because it is abundantly clear here that this man who was sold out to the purposes of God, he didn't just encounter one trauma, it was one after another, after another, after another, after another. And I think if we're not careful... We can get this idea that Christianity is like having a, a genie in a bottle. And when life goes wrong, you just rub the lantern or whatever, the genie pops up and everything goes right. That is not what the Bible shows us. And sometimes when we navigate through difficulty, we can be irrationally angry at God for not giving us an easy ride when he never promised us an easy ride in the first place. Look at this story. And we look around in life and it can be tough, it can be busy, financial challenges, health, marital issues, worried about children. And sometimes, just as Paul experienced, we can be the victim of other people's bad decisions. And we have to live with the consequences of those poor choices. My point is this, not in any way to trivialize the trauma that perhaps you might be steering through right now. But what I do want us to see is that in the midst of that, there is no suggestion in Scripture that because you got Jesus, the sun will always shine and there'll never be any difficulty. I wonder sometimes whether we can be disappointed at God unfairly because we're mad at him for not delivering what he never ever promised in the first place. Life can be tough and Paul's story here shows us that. Don't be surprised at pain or heartbreak. Secondly, we learn from this, stay true to what is true. Stay true to what is true. Again, let's 
follow with me if you will. Let's pan the camera back a little bit and, and look at something that happened on Paul's arrival in Jerusalem, before he got arrested, before any of that stuff. He is met by the church in Jerusalem. And the church in Jerusalem is really struggling with this whole idea of Jewish people becoming Christians. Do they still have to keep the old Jewish laws? Frankly, the church in Jerusalem was compromised in that area. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, had campaigned that now in Christ we are free. In fact, he had confronted those who had tried to drag Jewish converts back to the old rules and regulations. But here's what's suggested by the church in Jerusalem because of these rumors. Acts 21. They said to Paul, here's what we want you to do. We have four men here who have completed their vow. Go with them to the temple and join them in the purification ceremony, paying for them to have their heads ritually shaved. Then everyone will know that the rumors are all false and that you yourself observe the Jewish laws. Now, the commentators go ballistic on this one. Some say, well, Paul was just being peaceable. He loved the Jewish nation. And he was just trying to be accommodating. There are others who would say this was a complete compromise. That he should never have done this. That he created confusion uh, in his response to this challenge. Uh, What I think we can say is that if he wasn't wrong, he was dangerously close to being wrong. You see, pressure can cause us to lose our grip on our principles. And suddenly we say, well, you know, I normally live this way. But for this situation, I'm going to just do it my own way. By the way, giving you a lot of history here, there's another part of the story where Paul really did stand up for his principles. When Felix is trying him, Felix's wife was called Drusilla. She was his third wife. Felix was her second husband. She had an affair with Felix when she was married to her first husband, whom the historians say she did not find exciting. She was unusually beautiful. She was about 20. And when Paul spoke to this couple, what did he talk to them about during the trial? Listen to this. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul. Listen to him as he spoke spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. And Paul talked about righteousness... Self-control and the judgment to come. I mean, he is talking to a couple who have found each other through an extramarital affair and who had a terrible reputation for immorality. And what does he do? He talks about self-control. I'm not thinking that's going to help his case. On that situation, he stood his ground. Simple principle, are we, allowing, are we allowing pressure to cause us to back away from our principles so that we just become like everybody else? Uh, when I was 16, I was, uh, I was in the army cadets back in England. The, it's like junior army, you know, you, you dress up in uniforms, you run around and shoot guns and stuff. And, and uh, we, used to, we used to go on three-day exercises when we take our rifles And obviously, you wouldn't shoot live ammunition. That would be wrong. But we shot blank ammunition, and we had these mock battles. 
And I was a sergeant in the army cadets, Sergeant Lucas. And we are crawling up this hill, and I've got my troop behind me. This is my John Wayne moment. When one of the guys behind me, who obviously didn't really like me, decided to fire his gun in my direction and shot me with a blank in the rear end. And it hurt. And I, when it hit my rear end, I turned around to him and I said, I say, old chap. I'm feeling something of a pain in my rear end. How many know I did not say that? And he said this. He said, I'm really sorry, Sergeant. I didn't see you. And his excuse was that I was camouflaged in. I was wearing my camouflage gear. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, don't be conformed to the image of this world. Don't just, don't just fit in. And sometimes pressure causes us to do that. Of, are we finding ourselves in a situation in our life where we're doing that? Thirdly, when you're under pressure, take care of your responsibilities. Take care of your responsibilities. Look at this. This is after Paul has been arrested. The commander brought Paul inside and ordered him, lashed with whips, to make him confess his crime. He wanted to find out why the crowd had become so furious. When they tied Paul down to lash him, Paul said to the officer standing there, Is it legal for you to whip a Roman citizen who hasn't even been tried? When the officer heard this, he went to the commander and asked, What are you doing? This man is a Roman citizen. So the commander went over and asked Paul, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I certainly am, Paul replied. I am too, the commander muttered, and it cost me plenty. Paul answered, But I'm a citizen by birth. The soldiers who were about to interrogate Paul quickly withdrew when they heard he was a Roman citizen and the commander was frightened because he had had him ordered, bound and whipped. Paul knew his rights. And so in that moment of pressure, he says, hold on a minute, you can't do this to me. I have legal rights that I am now going to exert in this situation. Sometimes... I think when we're under pressure, we can lose hope. And then what do we do? Well, we just do nothing. The finances are going wrong, but we toss the bill that is colored red into the drawer and we say, well, I'm praying about it. So hopefully it's all going to work out. And pressure can prompt us into passivity. Here in this situation, Paul doesn't just submit to this terrible beating that could have killed him. He says, hold on, I've got rights. Are there situations where we are asking God to do something, but we're not doing what we're supposed to do in the situation? Years ago, I heard of a church that was looking for a new pastor, many years ago. And I, I said to them, well, what are you doing about this? I said, is there anybody from within the church who could be your pastor? They said, no. I said, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to advertise? And they said, no, we don't want to advertise because we want God's will. Well, I'm like, well, advertising could help you to find God's will. But they weren't willing to play their part. And let's just say it did not turn out well. Are there things that we have become passive about and we're just asking God you do this, you do this move Lord 
And God is saying, you move. You take action, take responsibility. Fourthly, when we're under pressure, let's respond. Respond, don't react. Respond, don't react. Before I read this scripture, I just want to tell you, I'm so grateful that the Bible is honest about its heroes. I'm so glad that we don't get an airbrushed version of grinning women and men who always get it right. The Bible faithfully tells us about their failures as well as their successes. So listen to what happens during one of the court cases. In fact, the one before the Sanhedrin. Acts 23. Gazing intently at the high council, Paul began, Brothers, I've always lived before God with a clear conscience. Instantly, Ananias, the high priest, commanded those close to Paul to slap him on the mouth. But Paul said to him, God will slap you, you corrupt hypocrite. What kind of judge are you to break the law yourself by ordering me struck like that? Those standing near Paul said to him, Do you dare to insult God's high priest? I'm sorry, brothers. I didn't realize he was the high priest, Paul replied. For the scriptures say, you must not speak evil of any of your rulers. Now, for the high priest to order this to happen was illegal. The Jewish law said, he who strikes the cheek of one Israelite strikes, as it were, the glory of God. And the Jews had this, this principle of... Uh, of whitewashing tombs and sepulchres because they were considered unclean so they would whitewash them so that everyone would stay clear. In the original language here, Paul turns and he calls the high priest a whitewashed sepulchre. He's basically saying, hey mister, you're full of dead men's bones. But it was an impulsive, angry reaction that he Regret it. When you're under pressure, be careful. When, do you ever get that email and it irritates you? Anyone ever got one of those? It kind of makes you mad and you read it and as you read it, you're getting madder and steam comes out of your ears. And then you do that thing that you should never do when you just read that email. You press reply. And you know you're, you know you're really reacting because people three houses away can hear you pounding on the keyboard. And you, you put out the email. And then your finger hovers above the enter key, which means that in ten seconds from now, you are gonna press that thing and That's the sound that emails make when they travel through the internet. And then you go, oh no. My wife says to me, Jeffrey, she only calls me Jeffrey when I've been bad, frequently known as Jeffrey. She says, Jeffrey, do not reply. Wait 24 hours. Don't react, but respond. I've noticed this. I've noticed, can I I take a bit of a risk? I I think I will. Americans are really polite. I've noticed that. You people are really, you're actually more polite in grocery stores than British people. Now, British people are watching this right now 
on the internet. So I need to be careful. God bless you. How about that, Queen? But if I go to the grocery store and you nudge my trolley, excuse me, my cart, everyone say trolley. Trolley. That's what we call it. And it sounds so much more sophisticated. Trolley. Cart. You nudge my cart. Here's what normally happens in America. People say, oh, excuse me. Excuse me. I'm, I'm sorry. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Have a nice day. It's great. I love that. Americans are more polite than British people. Except when they're driving. Oh, yeah. What is it we are surrounded by the barrier of metal. This is my road. My forefathers died for this road. Get out of my way. Or I am going to drive right through you. Some people drive mad. Some Christians drive mad. You know, you ever seen the bumper sticker? Honk if you love Jesus. I've seen that and I've honked and they forgot they put the sticker on. My point is, it's possible. It's possible for us to live just beneath the surface of our skin. In fact, some of us take it a step further. Some of us actually like the opportunity to be irritated. We kind of relish the possibility that we can complain. That we can react rather than respond. Respond under pressure. Don't react. You know, we, we laugh about it a little, but it's very serious when people live angry. Marriages crumble when people live just beneath the surface of their skin. And Paul, you might say, well, he just got a punch in the mouth. He was pretty justified. But even then, he says, no, I shouldn't have done it that way. By the way, if you do do that, say sorry. Years ago, I went to see Love Story. Anyone remember Love Story? It was a weepy. It was so embarrassing. It was such a sad ending, and the lights come up, and everybody else gets up to leave, and I'm sobbing uncontrollably. All the women, they're quite happy. They're just going out with the popcorn, and I am just crying. Pathetic. But it said this in the movie. It's one of the worst statements you could ever make. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Stupid statement. If you tend to live angry, realize that about yourself. Take action, get help before it becomes too destructive. And when you do, do it. Recognize you do it. And do what Paul did and apologize. Well, the last thing is this. And that is under pressure. Know that God is with you. Know that God is with you. Look at what happens in Acts 23. As the conflict grew more violent. The commander was afraid they would tear Paul apart. So he ordered his soldiers to go and rescue him by force and take him back to the fortress. And look at this. That night, the Lord appeared to Paul and said, Be encouraged, Paul. Just as you have been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. Now, the word that Jesus uses take heart or be encouraged. Only Jesus uses that word in the entire New Testament. There are four other times in the Gospels when he uses that word. To the, the guy who was 
paralyzed and bedridden in Matthew 9. Take heart or courage, son, your sins are forgiven. To the woman with a hemorrhage that had been going on for 12 years, he says, take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you, Matthew 9. To the terrified disciples, as he came to them across the storm-tossed Sea of Galilee, he said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And then in the upper room, the night before his own trial and crucifixion, he says to his disciples and friends, take heart, take courage, I have overcome the world, John 16. And then the fifth time is to Paul. He says, you're going to preach the good news in Rome. Now, I read that and I thought, you know what, if I was Paul, I'd like Jesus not to say that I'm going to be going to go to Rome. I'd like Jesus to say, don't worry, you're going to get out of here and you're going to go to Hawaii. Aloha. But he doesn't. Let me explain why. And I never discovered this. This is, I love the Bible because there's always something new to learn. I never saw this before preparing for this sermon this week. 22 years earlier, when Paul was still called Saul, when he was converted 22 years earlier, a man called Ananias, who was involved in helping him, God spoke to that man and he said to him, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. 22 years earlier, I want you to see this. Paul is told through the Holy Spirit, you are going to stand before Gentile kings. That prophecy has not been fulfilled. But now, when he goes to Rome, at last, that prophecy will be fulfilled as he stands before the Gentile king, Caesar. I don't understand how the sovereignty of God works. I know this. He doesn't control every circumstance. He doesn't always get his way. It's not God's will that little kids are trafficked or abused. It was not God's will, ma'am, that you experienced the trauma of that attack. Not everything that happens is God's will. But I do know this. That even when life seems to be absolutely chaotic and one problem comes after another, still the big purposes of God are fulfilled in Paul's life. It's interesting too because Paul wrote to the Romans about praying for him or the church in Rome, I should say. He said, pray for me for my rescue from the unbelievers in Judea. And now that prayer is answered. How? Through Roman officials who rescue him. My point is simply this, without trying to make this sound so easy and neat. It's a big mess. But God hasn't left him. It's a big mess. But Jesus says to him, I am with you. I don't want it to sound like a cliche or a slogan, but if you are a follower of Jesus, you will never, ever be alone again. His wisdom is yours. His presence is with you. He hears your prayer, whatever the perception is that you have about the outcome. In trouble, 
in pressure, God is still with us. We're going to pray together. And as we pray, I want us perhaps to just reflect on those words again of John Newton. So appropriate as we think about Paul's story. Through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. His grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. Let's pray. We see this story, Lord. We see a story of one trauma after another. Hauled up in court five times. Beaten by crowds. Falsely accused. And yet, you were with Paul all the way. And your purposes were fulfilled. As we have reflected on this story, Lord, strengthen our hearts for the journey. On this Pentecost weekend, where the church around the world celebrates the fact that we are not alone, but the Holy Spirit has come. Strengthen your people. Before I conclude this prayer, Perhaps we sing a little refrain in a moment. I wonder if you're in a time where you would say, you know what, it's, it's not one challenge that I'm facing right now. I feel hemmed in by the challenges. It's a, real, it's a really difficult time of pressure for me. I would love to just include you specifically in prayer. Would you just lift your hand for a moment if that's where you find yourself right now? I want you to know that in coming to Timberline tonight that you have been prayed for and we agree together you can put your hand down you know every situation Lord strengthen your people just as you lifted up Paul's head and you gave him an assurance that you were with him whatever the challenges are We pray that hope and grace and strength will come. Sustain your people. In pressure we pray. In Jesus' name.